morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday session, uh, Ask the Experts. Today's a little different. Uh, uh, we're not going to have uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. John Shriver. He'll come back next week, uh, Friday, uh, to talk about a lot about the COVID pandemic specifically. But today we are addressing a very, very important topic, which is related to COVID-19, uh, but also not related to COVID-19. It's part of a what I call the chronic pandemic of mental health uh, and behavioral issues with uh, with all of us, you know, with uh, uh, which the pandemic has clearly exacerbated. Uh, uh, I know you're feeling it. Uh, I know our faculty, our nurses, our staff, um, everyone is uh, distressed and stressed. I mean, this has been a very difficult almost two years uh, with, uh, again, the pandemic has made it very difficult. You know, I think of 700,000 people uh, or of our fellow citizens who have died. And uh, each one of you has had someone uh, perhaps who has died that you've known very closely or more than one person, a direct family member. Uh, and if they haven't uh, passed, perhaps they have been affected by COVID-19 or you have directly. Uh, all our norms, all our ability to, you know, our ability to, to disconnect from, from something like this has been very difficult because it's a, a present uh, everywhere you go, to the supermarket, to the stores, to the games. You know, the mask is a constant reminder of this, the news media. Uh, so all of that obviously is playing havoc and with, with our mental health, but particularly our kids, uh, our, our children, the adolescents. And today we're going to learn uh, about what's going on at Connecticut Children's, and, and Sarah Matney will address that, our chief nursing officer. And then we have two of our experts, and we're very lucky to have uh, a real fantastic team of, of mental health, behavioral health providers. Uh, two of them will be here today, Dr. Melissa Santos, who's the head of uh, of our child psychology division, and then Dr. Rob Ketter, who's one of our uh, expert developmental pediatrici pediatricians and, uh, and, and news connoisseur. People call Rob when they need to talk about developmental pediatrics. Um, so I'm going to uh, pass it on to Sarah, who I believe is uh, online. Uh, and then after Sarah, we'll ask Dr. Santos to come up here, Dr. Ketter, and we'll have time for questions at the end. So thank you for joining us. Hang in there, it's gonna be a fast ride, Sarah. Good morning, Dr. Salazar. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I've appreciated the opportunity that I have to join. So I'm going to share specifically some of the challenges that Connecticut Children's is having related to not only the uh, behavioral health and mental health surge, but also the medical surge. And so um, you may have caught some wind on some of the uh, news and media outlets over the past couple of days that Connecticut Children's has been proactively communicating with other health systems as well as state agencies to really help them understand the impact of this surge. And so specifically at Connecticut Children's, um, we have had an influx of mental and behavioral health patients. Um, on any given day over the past few weeks, we've had over 50 children, some of whom are in inpatient areas and the majority of whom are in our um, ED and ambulatory areas uh, staying with us overnight um, uh, while we help identify what those next steps are for those patients and attempt to find placement beyond Connecticut Children's. As many of you know, we do not have a psychiatric inpatient unit as of yet. And so over the past couple of days, we've just been um, working with the Department of Public Health. We've been meeting with other um, hospitals and organizations to really understand the ways we can partner with them to help identify additional resources for these adolescents. What you as um, community providers and internal team members need to know is that we are in a state of, um, of a hospital operations um, incident command, and we are addressing this through multiple times throughout the day, making sure that our staffing is able to safely provide care to these patients and families, supporting our team members well, and ultimately finding the right place for these children to get additional services beyond the emergency stabilization, which we're prepared to do. So we are here for you as the community um, if you need help with your patients, um, but we are also making sure that um, this is not the end all be all, that we make sure that we are connecting our patients and families to the resources that they need. So if you have specific questions um, for me, um, I will have to leave before the end of this meeting so I know that they'll get those questions to me via email and I'll be happy to respond to you. Um, if you are looking for partnership or, or help and care for your patients, there are a variety of resources that I know this team will cover today, but know that Connecticut Children's is here for you. Despite um, you know, the surge and the volumes, um, if your patients need Connecticut Children's, we will always be here for them. 
So I thank you for the opportunity to share this update. I know it was brief and not a lot of detail, um, but just know that while the volumes continue to surge both medically and for the behavior and mental health population, Connecticut Children's will continue to do what it needs to do to be here for you and for your patients and families. So thanks for the opportunity to share. I'm happy to triage any questions either in the chat box for the next few minutes or via email post this webinar. So thanks again, Dr. Salazar. Dr. Santos. Perfect. So thank you so much, Sarah, for taking a few minutes this morning. And we're excited to be here, both Dr. Ketter and I, to talk to you a little bit about addressing the mental health pandemic, uh, where we've been and where we are going. And I'm going to hopefully get my slides to work. Here we go. So it's fitting that we're here as we conclude Mental Illness Awareness Week and in anticipation of World Mental Health Day on Sunday. And so our main goals for today is to describe the current status of the mental health pandemic, report some of the long-term mental health outcomes from other large-scale traumatic events, and then Dr. Ketter is going to lead you through a variety of different strategies that can be implemented to support our children, family, and team members as well. So let's sort of start at the beginning and talk about mental health trends prior to the pandemic. So we know that prior to the pandemic, we had a mental health sort of crisis at that time. We knew that by the age of eight, one in six kids were being diagnosed with a, a mental behavioral or developmental disorder. We know that behavior disorders tend to occur more commonly in younger childhood with depression and anxiety occurring as kids get older. We also know that we see some differences with boys being diagnosed when they're younger, and that we see that people that are living in poverty tend to get diagnosed with mental health concerns at a much higher rate. We know that there's a lot of overlap between conditions so that if you have depression, you're likely to also have anxiety as well. And we know that most startling that suicide is the second leading cause of death starting for kids at the age of 10, but that we start to see that one in eight kids starting at the age of six have thoughts of suicide. We show you this data not so much to talk about the prevalence rates, but to talk about the fact that we had a problem prior to the pandemic. And part of the problem was the prevalence rate that we were seeing, but part of the problem is also the system of mental health care that we had. We know that in many respects, we had in some respects a broken mental health system prior to the pandemic, where perhaps we didn't have a strong enough workforce and treatments that allowed us to pivot when crises occurred. And so now as we shift to talking about COVID-19, as Sarah mentioned, and you've probably seen on the news, there has been tremendous news articles and news stories, particularly in the last 72 hours about what's been occurring here at Connecticut Children's, but what's occurring here is also occurring throughout Connecticut and the nation as well, as more and more kids are seeking services in urgent care facilities and in the emergency department. And we know that our research is showing skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, aggressive behavior, eating disorders, and all of our kids across the boards. And we're also seeing what we know as other concerning features as well. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see um, this data, but when we talk about child behavioral health, we know that we're seeing higher rates of depression, we're seeing higher rates of, of anxiety, we're seeing higher rates of suicidal thoughts, we're seeing higher rates of aggression. But what we're also seeing is significant impairments as well in our parents. So parenting stress, parents getting diagnosed with mental health conditions as well. When we talk about the diagnoses in our children and our adolescents, we can't forget the system that they work into and that when we talk about children's behavioral health, we also have to take into account the well-being and the behavioral health of the entire family unit that makes them up. We know that we're seeing those rates of visits to the emergency room that started skyrocketing shortly after the pandemic started and it's increasing now. If you can see the table on the on your screen there up on the top is adolescent girls on the bottom is adolescent boys. These are visits this year to the emergency room for suicide attempts, not thoughts, actual attempts. And what you're seeing is skyrocketing visits for adolescent girls to the emergency department for actual attempts of suicide. It's sort of a little bit lower for boys. We know that their behaviors may more fall along the lines of aggression, but this is really concerning if we knew that suicide was the second leading cause prior to the pandemic, what this may be indicating we're going to see moving forward. This is data from here in Connecticut from the CDC Household Pulse Survey. So this is for the percent of Connecticut adults that are reporting symptoms of depression and anxiety over the last seven days. What you can see is that since the start of the pandemic, the prevalence rate has been trying to hover around the 40, 40th percent. So 40% of Connecticut adults experiencing depression and anxiety. We've seen it kind of go down over the last several months, which is, I guess, good in, in comparison. But just to reflect upon that yellow line at the bottom near the 10th, 
that's where we were prior to the pandemic. So even with it lowering down from its height, it is still significantly high what we're going to see in our parents that are coming in with our children that we're seeing in the emergency department and throughout our ambulatory clinics as well. So what have we seen specifically here at Connecticut Children's and I want to thank Ryan Calhoun, Z, Renee and their teams for this uh, pulling together this data. So what we've seen is across the board from both our ambulatory clinics as well as in our ED an increased amount of visits telehealth helped us significantly on the ambulatory side to keep going at the height of the pandemic. And what we're seeing is not only mental health visits to the ED, but most significantly increasing lengths of stay. So the amount of time kids are staying there across all conditions. So when you look at the amount of hours that they're spending in the ED, just increasing steadily throughout. And for those that can't go home that we're waiting for higher levels of care, again, the number of hours that they're spending in the ED waiting for their next placement um, is just increasingly increasing steadily. And just for a reflection, it's not just in the ED that we're also seeing these trends occur. As the pandemic has worn on, we've seen significant wait times occur in our ambulatory side to see our psychologists. So now we're nearing near, near two months to see a psychologist on the ambulatory side. So if you're waiting two months to see a psychologist on the ambulatory side and you're in distress, what's going to happen? You're going to end up in the ED. And if you're in the ED and you could come out, if we could connect you to an outpatient psychologist and you can't because we have a two month wait, we have a clog at every end and every aspect of our mental health system that needs help. We also want to just reflect too that when we talk about the mental health of children, we also have to reflect that mental health doesn't occur in isolation and occurs in terms of the whole health of the child. And we perhaps see that most significantly when we talk about children with obesity. Um, so we know that the rates of obesity have steadily increased throughout the uh, throughout the pandemic, and we know that children and adolescents and adults with obesity have some of the highest rates of mental health concerns, some of the highest rates of suicide attempts as well. The pandemic has highlighted a lot of things in terms of healthcare disparities, in terms of access to care issues, and we have to remember that when we talk about mental health challenges, we have to reflect upon its impact on the medical status of kids, and also the environment in which they work in, their ability to access medical services, mental health services, groceries, their abilities to get outside and access those things. So we want to make sure when we're talking about the mental health of children, we want to make sure it occurs in the whole system in which they operate. And for that, Dr. Ketter will tell you a little bit more. Hi, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> this is an opportunity to talk about some intersectionality. Um, as we've been dealing with the pandemic, there have been some equity issues and and isms that we've been dealing with, whether it be racism, systemic racism, and even ableism, as we've seen children and adults with disabilities have disruption from being able to access services. Um, but this is a paper that came out yesterday in pediatrics. And as Dr. Salazar mentioned earlier, we've had an exceptional amount of loss that we've experienced in the United States due to the COVID-19 pandemic. With this data, we've seen over 15 months 140,000 children across the United States have experienced the loss of a parent or grandparent caregiver due to COVID-19. The term used in this paper is orphan. Orphan is something that I think about with a series of unfortunate events or Oliver Twist. I did not think of the term orphans as we were thinking about children in the United States, but we do have many. And when we look at the data and pull it up by other factors, we can see that it's pretty stark. So I'm going to read it here. If we look at the number per 100,000 deaths, we can see that per 100,000 people, there are 322 Black children who've experienced the loss of a parent or caregiver, 592 um, non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaskan Native individuals. So we can see that depending on your minority or non-white ethnic or racial status, that there's a rate of 1.1 to almost five times higher the amount or probability that someone's lost a parent or caregiver. So we're seeing exceptional disparity. And what this really has us have to think about is that social determinants of health are still at the core of this syndemic that we're experiencing. When we look at what's going on between COVID and that trauma and grief response, we can see that that also affects um, and interplays with systemic racism and issues and has an effect on parent and child mental health. Same thing when it comes to childcare access, same thing when it comes to housing access 
or food security or income or job security. So something that we're not used to having to talk about on this level or scale is something called childhood traumatic grief. Fortunately, there are resources, and this is a really nice one. If you're looking to educate yourself on how can I better provide care for my patients in this context, because odds are many of us are working with children and families who've experienced the loss of a primary caregiver, here's some information for you. And you can also go to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and download some handouts for other mental behavioral health providers. And there's also a really nice handout for parents and caregivers that you can access there as well. So now I will return it back to Dr. Santos. Thank you. So yesterday I was in a meeting with Dr. Salazar and he said, I wonder if we could predict at all what um, the behavioral health crisis might do moving forward um, as this pandemic kind of wears on. So Dr. Salazar asked and he shall receive right now. Um, so here's what we know. As much as Dr. Salazar would love at the conclusion of this talk to come up here and be like, pandemic's over, no more COVID, we don't have to worry about it, we can throw these away, that sort of thing. Even if he did that, we know that the long-lasting uh, mental and physical health impact of COVID is going to be a lot longer than this. We know this from our work from 9-11, so we know that 20 years removed from September 11th and the tragedy of the Twin Towers, we still see higher rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and substance abuse in people that were impacted, broadly defined, by the Twin Tower tragedy. We know for events like Hurricane Sandy, so those that were impacted by the Superstorm, five years later, still impacted by significant levels of anxiety and PTSD. And then remember when we were worried about Ebola hitting Connecticut children's? So we know from research of the Ebola crisis as well, the significant impact ongoing of mental health, depression, anxiety in people that were impacted by Ebola. And this was also the first time that we really started to document the toll on healthcare workers. So those that had to be on the front lines that were caring for patients when they didn't know what would happen if they themselves became impacted and the longstanding depression, anxiety, PTSD, and substance abuse that we see in our healthcare workers when they're faced with such a challenge like this. We've never faced a, a global, I've never been, this is my first global pandemic. I think this is the first global pandemic for most of us. And so if we know this from smaller scale tragedies, what might this mean for us moving forward? And again, thank you to Renee and Ryan and Z for this data, but what they did was try to project what we might see in terms of behavioral health trends as a result of COVID. So the red line at the start is where we are now. Uh, the red line projects the visits for behavioral health moving forward over the next five years if COVID had absolutely no impact on behavioral health. I think we've already established it, it does have an impact. The green is the worst case scenario of what we might see for behavioral health visits and needs over the next five years if we have the worst case scenario of COVID, and blue is the more realistic option. Across all of those, what you can see is that this doesn't plateau till 2024. And so even regardless of whatever trend line you use, we are looking at a long road ahead to treat the behavioral health and mental health impact of COVID in our children and our adolescents and in our parents. I wish there was a way that I could wrap this up in a pretty bow because I realized that this might sound really um, not depressing, quite frankly, to think that we still have many years ahead to deal with the long-term impacts, but I think it's reality. But I also think about this. We did amazing things in COVID. We did amazing things to transform healthcare, to provide medical care in ways that we had never done before. Many of you probably tried to do telehealth before the pandemic and were told like, no, we can't do it, it's too hard, all those sort of things. All of a sudden the pandemic happened, we provided telehealth and access to care in new ways. Perhaps this is a way for us to reform how we provide mental health services now in a way that really allows for true access to care and for us to provide the right care to the right kids at the right time at the right intensity that they need. And we could take this as an opportunity to really transform the care that we provide for kids for the stigmatizing condition of mental health, the way we did for the medical part of COVID. I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Ketter to provide you a few more strategies. Thank you, Dr. Santos. And this is my first global pandemic too. Um, so as we just went through all those stark numbers and we're taking a moment to cope with our own strategies, I thought, why not? I'll do a little micro demonstration. This is a poppet. It's the cool toy of the summer. It's a great fidget, but also great anxiety reduction strategy. And if apologies for those with misophonia, but if you can hear over the mic, it just provides a really nice soothing popping sound. So um, if you're looking for tools for kids, pop it. Really inexpensive. That is not a brand. I don't know what else to call it, but everyone loves it and it exploded just like fidget spinners. So 
strategies um, today as a developmental and behavioral pediatrician strategies are brought to you by various shapes why because i'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician um, i'm going to bring those shapes up because there's going to be one shape in particular that's my favorite and we'll talk about why um, to reframe what we're doing part of the reason that i'm here as a developmental and behavioral pediatrician is i work with children Yes, I work with children with developmental disabilities, autism, um, and intellectual disability. I also work with children with ADHD, and I work with children with undifferentiated emotional and behavioral problems and delays. And part of what we recognized is the magic and science of pediatrics is, is that we understand life course or development over time. We've updated our policy statement through the American Academy of Pediatrics on understanding childhood toxic stress and what we as of this summer are now really trying to emphasize is, is that it's more than just dealing with toxic stress. So previously on Ask the Expert, I covered all of this. What are some core tenants to child development? Experience builds brain architecture, great, except pandemics kind of knock down some of the experiences. Serve and return interaction shapes brain circuitry, great. But if you have parents who are experiencing their own emotional and behavioral problems and stressors, that might reduce the number of opportunities that a child has. And then finally, the pandemic's increased an awful lot of toxic stress, and we know that that can derail healthy development. So toxic stress, we know there's positive stress, tolerable, and then toxic, right? Living in this pandemic has been an, a prolonged toxic stress. It's like living in an apartment building that's been on fire for 18 months, and people are feeling that. You're feeling that. But we can buffer those toxic stressors, right? We understand that there is a physiologic feedback mechanism through which this occurs, but this is now where we have the interaction of environment and biology, right? What we've understood from ACEs or adverse childhood experiences has taught us that there's so much more that we're looking at things like social conditions, local context. And now that we're experiencing things like the COVID-19 pandemic, further complications in how we think about this. But toxic stress was never the key take home point about that. It was all about building resilience. And the updated policy statement really focuses on how do we do that? How do we get through that? How do we help support children to be healthy? And we know that there are four things that we can do. We can build those healthy supportive adult-child relationships, build senses of self-efficacy, meaning I can do it, and perceived control, especially during challenging times, provide opportunities to strengthen adaptive or self-care skills and self-regulation skills. So starting early and working on feelings, talking about feelings and emotional vocabulary, something that we actually need to do for all children to help us as we walk towards this behavioral health crisis. Um, finally, we know that mobilizing sources of faith, hope, and cultural traditions are helpful, but the single most important resilience factor is having what we call safe, stable, and nurturing relationships. So in this updated policy statement, that's what we're really called to do in pediatrics. We understand that there is a public health approach to how we can promote the well-being of children. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, I really like triangles. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But how do we approach toxic stress? Well, we can think primary, secondary, and tertiary to um, um, prevention. So like, what do we do on that primary level? That's a universal level prevention or intervention that we do for everyone. Level two or tier two are targeted interventions for those who are at higher risk. And then tier three is when we're actually treating or diagnosing or working with problems. So we have tools. We've used these tools in pediatrics all the time. Things like anticipatory guidance or reach out and read. Those are great universal primary interventions that we do. But when we start doing our more advanced screening or targeted screening or refer for more intensive services like trauma-focused behavioral therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's our third or tertiary level of service. What we can do is still promote those healthy relationships, right? We can support, and this is where I'm wearing my Barry Brazelton hat, right? How can we build that attachment and connection between parents and primary care? Helpful, right? Because kids learn coping skills and learn how to regulate by working off of their parents. So if we start identifying individuals who might struggle with that or might be at risk, we put in social services and programs or we follow up and do that secondary level of supports or we could use that third level. So um, this is a really great article. This is what I call required reading for my trainees. So if you can get a moment to read it, it is open access through the American Academy of Pediatrics. And if you really wanna see what we can do to promote this, um, please, please do that. 
Here, though, I'm going to use some more triangle approaches to talk about what are some of the tools that we have. So tools that we have for the primary care or ambulatory setting, right, here is my favorite shape. When we think of these tiers, tier one is what we do for everyone, tier two is what we do for some kids, tier three is what we do for a few kids. And this approach will work on both a public health and an individual level. So in terms of management strategies, when it comes to emotional and behavioral health, tier one is where we're doing universal screening, we're providing anticipatory guidance for families, and we're really pushing positive parenting supports just for our general population. This is helpful. It works for kids and families. We can point to resources. We can provide things. We can talk and answer basic questions. But once we get to this tier two, this is where we need you. As a specialist, right, we are going to be working with you in primary care. But the reality is, is as specialists, we're in a hard supply right now. So what can you do? You can still follow up and monitor kids who are at risk. You know, there is developmental surveillance. There is emotional and behavioral health surveillance. If you have a child who's at risk, seeing them back again more than just once a year for annual follow-up can be really helpful and important for families. You can co-manage with different specialists like community psychologists or community therapists. You can start working with school-based supports or birth to three programs. And most importantly, when we're in that tier two box, start addressing some of those complex social determinants of health, like housing and other risk factors. Tier three is where you're starting to get kids who have more complex needs and they need a lot more intensity. So that's where you're referring to specialists that are hard to come by psychiatry developmental behavioral pediatrics or what i call niche specialty psychologists um, doctorate level psychologists who specialize in particular things and have a really amazing and unique skill set but are working at a level that might be different than somebody who's out in the community in the same way we work with special education services or we could think about intensive home-based services which we'll briefly talk about and notice these are the different tiers up above that is when we have acute management strategies like mobile crisis or 211. But I really want to emphasize that all of these tiers are building up, that we want to provide this level of support for each of our children before we get to that point. So, what are some examples? These are things that you might know and do already. We use programs like Bright Futures, Reach Out and Read. We use screening tools um, to screen for emotional and behavioral issues in children. There are different tier two supports that you use. Um, anything with an arrow, we're going to talk about. So there are programs like Access Mental Health, our CLASP co-management um, guidelines. There's the Center for Care Coordination, Child Development Info Line. You can call and collaborate with schools and birth to three. Um, I know a lot of our local offices here have been using state grant funding to do circle of security training, which is great and wonderful. Um, there's also a lot of different community service and evidence-based practice location databases, which we'll talk about too. Once we get to that tier three, though, this is where picking up the phone and collaborating with advanced specialists is important. Making those referrals is important. Um, having that phone call to collaborate with schools and special education services is really important. Um, so coordinating those referrals is something that we want to do. And this is a much more intensive level of management but we'll talk about how to deal with that too. Mobile crisis, again, is our like fourth level of service. And what we're trying to do is figure out how can we help filter out all the kids that will benefit from those things. So here's an oversimplified approach when I try to help people understand what do we do. If you wanna connect with um, behavioral health supports and you're looking just in a non-urgent way, you can break it down into, does a child have public health insurance or private health insurance? If they're on public health insurance, you can call the Connecticut Behavioral Health Partnership Call Center. Their website doesn't really have a searchable database yet, but you can call and they will help connect the child with a clinician. Um, or you can use these online databases that I'll show you. If you have private insurance, what I usually recommend to families in a non-urgent way is to call and ask who's in network, because the hardest thing is when a family finds someone they like, but then they're not in network. And depending on their insurance, that can be a real barrier. Um, other things to think about, though, is when you make that referral, how do you do it? And what we have to think about is family capacity. And family capacity is a broad thing. And it could refer to if the family's got a lot of great skills, they're high functioning, they don't have a lot on their plate, they can do stuff. Or maybe they have a lot more stuff that they're just dealing with, a death in the family, um, dealing with emotional or behavioral health problems that are multi-generational. So we can triage in that way. When our families are in that high functioning category, Great, here's your list, why don't you call? 
I'm still going to follow up with you either by phone or in clinic to see that you've connected with services. But if you have a family that's struggling, make the connection right there, right? We can use our billable time while we're face to face in our encounters and we can pick up a phone, we can call. That's when you can advocate with a little A and say, hi, I am doctor or advanced practitioner so-and-so, and I would like to connect the family and make sure they leave with an intake appointment scheduled. So that's really important. It's something that I've been doing in my clinic for months um, over the pandemic. And it's something that we want to do to make sure that children get that level of wraparound because we know that for many families, if you just say, here are your resources, the actual follow through on that can be really low. So here are some of your tools. Um, if you're not familiar with CHDI's evidence-based practices online group, it's amazing. CHDI is doing a wonderful job of explaining what some of these different evidence-based tools are. And as a physician, I really want to emphasize this point. When we talk about medicine, if I were talking with Dr. Schreiber or Dr. Salazar about antibiotic management, they would say, well, are you talking about a beta-lactam or some other type of antibiotic? In the same way, when we're talking about behavioral health services, there are different types of therapies, there are different types of evidence-based practices, there are different types of providers. Learning about that is now part of our purview in pediatrics. So if you want to learn what are some of the evidence-based tools that we have access to in Connecticut, this is a great place to do that. And even better, there's a database of where you can find providers. So if you're looking for trauma-focused be uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, or one of my new favorites, MatchADTC, which is Modular Approach to Treatment for Children with either Anxiety, Depression, Trauma, or Conduct Problems, you can pull up, see a really nice map, or if it's hard for you to code and go through the map, there's even a searchable database where you can put in a zip code, put in a radius of what you're looking for, click the type of practice model that you're looking for, and it will pull up a map with different agencies. Then what I'll do is if I'm working with the family, ask which clinic on the list they'd like, and then I make the call right there and then, and we connect the family. And maybe you don't have to do this if you have a nurse or a social worker or some other support person in your practice who can do that. Another tool, and this is a very general one, it's not perfect, but it's a nice one. Um, Psychology Today, yes, the magazine that you might see around at the grocery store or other places, has a searchable database of providers. Now, when I give this resource to families, I say I can't endorse any one particular provider, but what's really nice is you can put in your zip code, you can search by issues, by type of therapy, by gender, by age, by price, by what insurances are taken, and then it pulls up profiles of people. And what's really nice is here's a pre-predictive value. You can read some therapist's profile, and if the family goes, oh, I like them, you've already started that walk of possible positive rapport and connection with someone. So this is another nice tool to try to find individuals. Um, if you're looking to help co-manage, we have our class co-management program. Um, we do have some resources for anxiety, depression, autism, and we're working on ADHD and several other tools, which Dr. Santos will talk about in a little bit. Um, so we have these that are here for you. Um, there are also other tools, access mental health. If you have not used this in primary care, please do use this. Um, you can call any one of the hubs, depending on where your practice location is, and you will be connected with a child psychiatrist to help walk you through co-management and basic steps. Why is this important? Because resources like child psychiatry and developmental behavioral pediatrics are in very short supply. Finally, when we start getting into the, I don't want to send my child to the ED or inpatient, but I need something more, what options do we have? There is a cadre of intensive home-based services throughout Connecticut. Each of these is different. If you want to learn more, here you can go to a state website where you can learn more about what's the difference between functional family therapy, ICAPS, which is intensive in-home child and adolescent psychiatric services, or multidimensional family therapy or multisystemic therapy. I've used all of these for different patients and connected them with various resources and each has their niche tool, which is really helpful. And I can say like, we've seen amazing results and this is helpful, not just for when we're discharging kids. This is helpful for preventing kids from needing to go inpatient. And that's in part what we want to do. Use these services in a more proactive manner in a cost-saving manner to prevent kids from getting to that point of crisis. So here's my favorite shape, and this is in part a little cheeky, but it's in part true. 
Um, my background in undergrad was I was a double major in biology and um, psychology, where I focused on child development, but also ecology and evolutionary biology. When you were talking ecosystems and ecology, resource allocation is key, and this really does become a bit of game theory. So here I'm zooming in on our tier two and what I'm calling tier 2.5 to three options that we can think about. So when you are referring to people who are in short supply, our number, we did a workforce survey for developmental behavioral pediatrics. There's just under 800 of us across the US and Canada. That's not a lot. And we did numbers. If we were to have the same number of pediatric um, developmental pediatricians to kids with developmental disorders as there were pediatric cardiologists to kids with congenital heart malformations, we'd need 770,000 of us across the country, right? Same with child psychiatry. Our numbers are pretty similar. So when you make a referral, this is where it's really important. Well-written, succinct referral questions, and please convey with an accurate representation of both urgency and complexity, um, because that helps us triage on our end. If we see that's just developmental delay or depression or anxiety, it kind of goes in the queue with the same mass of other referrals that say the same thing. Be cautious and avoid pan referrals, depending on what resource because if you're giving a family an option, they might cling because they're thinking it's a, a buyer's market and they're looking for which option is the best fit for them. But if a family gets a referral to one place and then gets in at another, that's blocking another family, or maybe they end up no-showing. So something to think about. As you're escalating your care and noticing that a child is more urgent, call the office of where you're referring to and convey that need with the staff. Make sure that you're scheduling that patient for follow-up to ensure connection with supports and really consider what other things you wanna do for follow-up. Finally, if this is a kid who's in your tier three, right? Like you're like, I need help with this child and it is urgent and important, call. Call for a peer-to-peer. -peer. Ask to speak with a referring clinician or someone yourself, not your staff. Please do it yourself. And this is what I call using your call wolf card or cry wolf card. And I tell this with all of my families. We have a big wait list even for follow-ups at times, and that's okay. But I tell families, if there's an emergency, I want to help you. That's why I like doing my job. Let me know. And if it is a real emergency, boom, you get your cry wolf card back. If it's not a real wolf, I'm still happy to see you. And I'm going to just hold on to that card for a while, but I'm happy you're here. But we have to be honest with each other, right? Because this is game theory. It is closed in a fixed ecosystem, so short resources. So let's be honest about triaging who needs what. I know we wanna help people. I know we wanna help people who are feeling urgent or taking into consideration other factors, but as we've seen, there's a lot of disparity and we have to be equitable in how we do this. Finally, ensure that there's handoff and closed loop communication. This is really important. So partnering with schools is important. There are different strategies that are in place that we need to become more aware about in pediatrics. If you're not familiar with a tool like PBIS, which is used in various schools in some districts, it is positive behavioral interventions and supports. And look, surprise, that's where this triangle came from because schools have been using a public health approach for a long time. This is the behavioral side of tiered interventions and supports. You might be familiar with something called SRBI in Connecticut, Scientific Based and in Research Interventions. That's the educational version of this, where we look at how do we triage and provide services that will address all students, help some with targeted special needs, and then for a select few get to the point of needing special education or intensive emotional and behavioral supports. There's also some really nice breakthrough services that have such a strong evidence base. CBITS or Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Trauma in Schools is amazing. Um, and fortunately, we have groups like CDHI helping track where it is in Connecticut and advocating for it. We know that the AAP and National Center for School Mental Health are advocating for more inclusion of these evidence-based practices in school settings. Why? Because kids spend a third of their life in school, right? A third of their day is in school. So if we can help provide services there, less disruption, less disruption on the part of parents and scheduling and missed work hours, it's really important and really helpful. Wrapping up, we have some systemic level tools, right? We can strengthen economic supports for families. We can help improve access to quality childcare and educational supports. And we can use these evidence-based programs to strengthen parenting and family relationships. Um, 
we really have to broaden what we're calling our emergency response though for children and this is from that same article that talked about orphanhood and caregiver death in the us right we want to prevent prepare and protect children we can prevent problems by preventing death and infection through equitable vaccine access we can prepare children and families with those safe supportive and nurturing family-based care support services and we can protect by using these evidence-based strategies that we have in our toolkit Finally, we have to remember that we have to think big picture and long term. The pandemic is putting a highlight on systemic issues, barriers with funding, access, training, all of that. So how do we address this? We're called to advocate. This is something that the AAP has called for for a long time and that we're doing a nice job here of at Connecticut Children's. If you want to help be a Connecticut Children's champion, please sign up on our website to get email blasts about legislative advocacy opportunities where we might send out a blast about children's um, physical health or emotional or mental health and opportunities to reach out and help make change for the positive for kids. Finally, for parents, this is hard. We could do a whole day just on this. Listen to families. This is not the time to placate or dismiss concerns. If a family's feeling problems, that's reflecting that something is going on in the family system, whether it's with the child or with the family, we still need to connect them with supports. We want to triage. We want to leverage our rapport to promote that family and emotional and relational health. We want to encourage family self-care and support. And then if needed, use warm handoff strategies. I did not sign up for pediatrics to work with a lot of parents in terms of their own emotional health and supports. But this is a calling that we need to do. Why? Because we work with family systems. So having tools like access to a warm line to give to families if they need further help or support, or leveraging those conversations on how are you feeling, mom or dad? How's it going for you? How's your self-care? Do you think it would be helpful to have some more support is really important. There's other tier one tools for families. There are awesome apps. I love everything related to Sesame Street and Sesame Place. Calm is a great app. Daniel Tiger, if you didn't know, is the new Mr. Rogers. Um, I love the book The Color Monster, which is a great tool about talking about labeling feelings and emotions. Um, the Zones of Regulation is a phenomenal tool um, based out of occupational therapy work, but schools are using it too. It's a great framework. And then um, uh, available at the store that I will refer to as the bullseye, um, there are these anger management cards which patients have shown me, and they're wonderful tools that we can use to help kids learn how to develop these emotional regulation skills. Finally, for team members, this is hard. As we're getting through this, right, we have to do our own emotional self-regulation because we're in the trenches. We're in the trenches in the ED, we're in the trenches in primary care. Our support staff are in the trenches on the phones helping deal with parents who are stressed. So how can we do this? This is the facilitating attuned interactions model that I was uh, trained in through the Erickson Institute. And it's something we're working on training our residents a bit with, but how do we get through this arc of a visit and convey what we need to do? Well, it all begins with, mindful self-regulation. How do we prepare ourselves to walk into an emotional encounter? How do we regulate ourselves at the end for how to deal and cope and get ready for the next family that we're getting ready to support? So now I will pass it back to Dr. Santos. I thought he was going to leave his fidget tool here too. Um, so we're also proud to announce a couple of things that are occurring that directly can help you as team members. We have our trauma-informed care classes. These are occurring on Monday and Tuesday. We launched these um, a couple months ago and over 80 team members attended. The feedback from this was very positive. We also have this one as well as the hidden message, understanding challenging behaviors. This is going to occur in November. You can register for either one of these trainings through Cornerstone and Kim Kevner can answer any questions that you may have as well. We're also happy to announce that there's a lot of things occurring here at Connecticut Children's to better support our behavioral health patients, and that includes two new ambulatory clinics that are coming in January of 2022. So one is our medical coping clinic, and these are going to be for patients that are being seen here at Connecticut Children's specialty clinics that are not currently staffed by a psychologist. These are designed for children and adolescents who are having difficulties managing their medical conditions due to underlying mental health challenges. We know that one of the populations of kids that we have a very hard time finding services for are kids that have those chronic medical conditions on top of having mental health conditions as well. And so we want to be able to take care of our patients here at Connecticut Children's. 
In addition, we're launching our medical and mental wellness program. This is a multi-day, multi-hour program designed for kids and adolescents who are at risk of or have been hospitalized due to their medical and or mental health status. And this is gonna be really a multidisciplinary care team that's gonna to come together to promote adaptive symptom management, physical functioning, and individual and family resiliency. In addition for our community providers, and Dr. Salazar can probably talk a little bit more about this, but there's been question about whether or not some of the behavioral health surge that we have seen could be due to COVID infection and some long lasting symptoms. So our long COVID clinic has now launched here at Connecticut Children's. This is for kids who have been infected, whether or not they were symptomatic or not by COVID, and are still experiencing over a month later physical and or mental health symptoms of that were new and not there prior to their COVID infection. You can find out more information about this long COVID clinic on our Connecticut Children's website through Clinical Pathways, follow the links for COVID-19 management. Back to you, Dr. Ketter. Thank you. Um, and something else that we're excited to try piloting is, is um, we're reviving something that we had internally here as an educational tool, interdisciplinary management rounds. Um, but as we're bringing this, we're doing it for CME. So this is an opportunity to have a monthly interactive online case conference with CME credit available. And what we will be doing is kind of like a morning report style. We will have a panel of experts that will tackle a case that's submitted by you, someone from the community, that focuses on navigating issues related to care collaboration and coordination, healthcare ecosystem navigation, resource allocation, health equity issues, and promoting resilience. So not so much focused on the what medication are we going to use, but what are the tools, who are the professionals, how can we collaborate and ensure safe care for our children. So stay tuned. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you both for you know truly outstanding presentation. Uh, people are requesting your slides and your signatures and things like that. So, <laughs> uh, really appreciate it. I think this is very very informative. And just to give you a sense, we've had over 230 people that have been around listening to you. So it's a it's it's a topic that's obviously of of grave concern for everyone involved. Um, so uh, if you have questions, go ahead and put them in the Q and A. Uh, section and I'll start with one uh, for uh, Melissa if you can you know tackle this one first and uh, you know the key issue for us is you know if you had two three strategies for our primary care providers to initiate perhaps to try to diminish entry through the emergency department for any of these kids which is really the wrong place to be frankly unless they're in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, with a medical issue specifically, you know, this is just the wrong place to be. What would you, what would those be? You know, so the pediatrician can pay attention to these. Yeah, it's such a great question, Dr. Salazar. So I think as much as we can make the check-in on mental health part of the regular pediatrician visit, I think that that's great progress. I do think that if your child is struggling or you have a, a patient that you're seeing that really is struggling, I, I agree. I don't think the emergency room is always the right place for every kid. Um, and you might be better off contacting 211, going through emergency mobile crisis. I think they, they've renamed themselves, but emergency mobile crisis, they can contact a family and a family can call them directly and they can speak to a professional in real time. And if needed, someone can go directly to their home and help them. It's, it ends up being a better setting. They can be taken care of in their home. If they need to go to the emergency room, they will direct them there, but oftentimes they can they can de-escalate the situation and take care of them right there in their home setting without the need to come to the emergency department. To piggyback on that, uh, what are your thoughts? Of, I know we, we're currently doing our primary care setting of having psychologists embedded within primary care practices. And you know, so the question about that, and that is that is that reimbursable? Is it actually feasible? Yep, so I think having psychologists in your primary care clinics is a fantastic idea. Um, and we are fortunate to have some in our clinics here at Connecticut Children's. It is reimbursable. All services provided by a psychologist in primary care are reimbursable. And I'm happy to talk to anybody more about how you can do that. Perfect. Um, would, would you say that you're caring for more teens or kids younger than 12 during the surge? I, I think I see the full gamut. You're saying younger? seeing all ages, um, I think that really emphasizing that we are seeing young children mm -hmm. endorse suicidality. Um, so um, just this week, I had a, a nine-year-old endorse feelings of suicidal ideation, and how do we help triage that? Part of the skill set is learning how to do a safety assessment, learning how to talk. It feels uncomfortable. None of us want to hear from somebody that looks like a baby or a young child that they're thinking about hurting themselves that triggers something in us that's in our own emotional reaction. 
So going back to that whole concept of self-regulation and emotional attunement, right? We have to be there and be available for our families. But yes, we're seeing this and we're seeing it a lot younger. I've had families who've talked about having a sixth grader in their school district commit suicide. Um, we're seeing lots of challenges and problems. Part of this is because we need to pay attention. This isn't just a, I'm not gonna screen because I don't know what to do. Even if you screen and identify, it's bringing us to recognize that we do need to fix something. And yes, in the acute moment, we need to say, here's what we wanna do. We wanna connect with services. And what we provided with this, you can access the slides, are tools, but we could talk and provide education on just any one of those things in much more detail. Um, what we need to do is think about how are we working with young kids? How are we catching the root of issues? Because what happens when you have a parent who's struggling with depression or ADHD, and they're learning to develop their own executive function and emotional regulation, but their child's learning it from them too, and it becomes this dance, right? It's not just biology, it's not just nurture, it's this combination of the two, and this is where it's really important. I do behavioral health, I am a pediatrician, but by helping families understand what is positive parenting, appropriate discipline, how not to shame a child for having feelings, what is an authoritarian versus an authoritative parenting style so that your child feels comfortable checking in and talking with you about things is first line pass of dealing with behavioral health. So this is where we really are calling everyone to do it. It's not just waiting for the screen. It's not just identifying that urgent child, but we are seeing kids with higher acuity, no question with the pandemic. So pick up the phone, call, ask for services. There's a cadre of them and you know we can think about where to connect and what to do. Uh, Rob, there's a question and comment. Uh, if you if they, they're wondering about the, whether you can comment on media and bad news and the effect of of the bad news on kids, the effect of the bad news on the parents, and by by reflection on the kids. So um, the the news has been hard, right? And it's been like a constant thing. Um, if you have Disney Plus and watch the Mysterious Benedict Society, right? The problem. <laughs> the urgency, right? There's always something going on and it's triggering this constant chronic anxiety, right? Because I, as much as I love NPR, there's some mornings where I'm like, can you just talk about puppies, please, right? Because it's hard <laughs> every day. But, but we're also hearing, right? Social media becomes an echo chamber. We're hearing in the news just this week, all of the stuff bleeding out about Facebook and Instagram. And what we know that that's done for the emotional and behavioral health for children on their own self-image, how, um, access to Instagram is particularly vulnerable for young pre-adolescent girls and how it can affect body image. So all of this is important. And this is the thing that's changed, right? Technology has exponentially gone up. It is pervasive. So when the AAP talks about how do we take a digital or screen-free day, that's mental health, right? That's how we're practicing that regulation. When we talk about not accessing the news, that's important. When we're talking about your your toddler who gets really upset when you take away their iPad and their video game from them, that's because we know games access the same pleasure center in your brain as alcohol. How would you feel if someone knocked a margarita out of your hand? You'd probably be upset too, right? So the thing is, we have to help kids by using the science and understand what we do and apply that for them. But the most important thing, even with the news, is that strong, supportive, stable nurturing relationship. How can we promote parent mental health? Because if parents have that capacity to go like, oh, the news is starting to make you bug out, let me just shut it off because I don't need to hear it right now myself. That's how we're gonna handle this. So uh, very good question and very accurate, but it's all about emotional and family supports as well. So uh, Mary Simon says, what about accountability of Instagram? I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the news this week on this. There is um, a lot of stuff. And um, I am not one to take to uh, the Frankenstein pitchfork and torch mentality, um, but we do want to be cautious and think, right? There should be some degree of accountability. What's really hard is, is that kids have access to electronics. The thing is, is we need to think about how are we talking about it because electronics are here. You can legislate behavior, it doesn't change things. And it's not just that, like when we talk about what degree and what age kids are seeing content that might be appropriate or inappropriate, whether it be sexualized or whether it be um, news-based or trauma-based, right? It's starting at a young age. So having conversations about rules, media use in families, creating safe space to talk about what you might see so that a child can debrief it with you as a parent is really important. But yes, on the public level, we do need to think about 
what are we doing for kids? And that's why we do have some laws put into place about children like COPA and being able to access electronics. Question for Melissa. So uh, perhaps you can give us a, a, few, you know, a few strategies for the providers that are feeling sort of overwhelmed with this. You know, we're used to, as a pediatrician, so I went into infectious disease. You have, a, you have a near infection, you treat it, you're done, right? You come back in 10 days, maybe. Maybe you failed in 48 hours. With, with, with this crisis, it doesn't go away. Yeah, I think we're, I think you've always said this to us always, Dr. Salazar, that we're in it together, we're going to be in it together for the long haul, and we're going to keep on working. This is going on though a long time, and I think as providers, we have to take breaks that perhaps we haven't taken before and be more mindful of those breaks. I even think about, as we're talking about social media and stuff like that, I think about how often my volt goes off when I'm not actually in the office, the number of times I get the volts in the morning that that say like there's no beds in the house, and it doesn't directly impact me a whole lot, but the, the sense of it is like this urgency that I need to take take care of something. And I think the more that we can take opportunities to turn off and get away and be okay with that, I think sometimes we, we went into healthcare to provide care for people to always be there to be helpful. And I think that sense of being able to turn off and be okay with turning off and getting out of the office, I think is really critical for us, particularly as this extends on. And then really using your team. I mean, think about how great our coworkers are and how much our team, we really do function as a team. And the more that we can rely on a team and function as a team, I think that's what's gonna help keep us going throughout this pandemic. Are you gonna say something? Somehow. And just to add, to borrow from psychology as our colleagues, something that I think psychology does much better than we do in, in traditional medicine is peer debriefing, right? This is hard. We have to learn to deal with the emotional regulation and support ourselves. It's okay, talk with your colleagues, talk about how you had a difficult family. It really can help, right? This isn't complaining, it's about how do we navigate this? How do we approach this? How could we do it a little differently? And how do we give each other support and really emphasizing that it's not just us. Remember, our front desk staffers are just as frustrated with all of these calls. Our telephone responders, right? Anybody who's a first responder there, teachers, school social workers are all dealing with this. So if we can take that ability to pause, be patient and go, ah, maybe this you being a jerk really is being driven by your anxiety. Let me pause and recognize that, right? I call it my spider sense, like, ah, that's probably some anxiety that's driving your vaccine refusal or driving your, your fear of going into a clinic to work with someone. So um, kindness is really gonna help. Peer support is gonna help. Taking time for yourself and self-care is gonna help. Maybe a poppet will help too. Um, but you know, something that you can do that's for you is really important. Rob, in, in line with that, and this will be the last question. Uh, it, it, it's, speaking of news and social media, what would you say the best strategies to addressing getting children vaccinated with families and children to calm the nerves about a lot of the fake news going around? Uh, so there is a lot of disinformation going on. And there is a new paper that just came out in pediatrics um, talking about that there is a lot of parental hesitation about the vaccines. Um, this is really hard. Uh, and when I try to break it down, I use some of my analogies. Um, normally, I don't like walking through windows. I don't like jumping through windows. But if you're in an apartment building that's on fire and your path of egress is blocked, you have little options. Fortunately, we have a nice fire truck with a ladder that we are calling the COVID vaccine. We've had amazing scientists across the country. We've had amazing government mechanisms that have looked for safety. This is why we're doing it step by step. We're waiting to get to kids because kids are special and we are being conservative and we are being protective of them. But this is amazing. An mRNA vaccine, like I hope we get some Nobel prizes for the people who've really worked on that. Right? When we turn to a time of war, we turn to our military leaders in a time of a biologic war, right? in the sense that we're fighting a pandemic, we should be turning to our scientists. These are the people who've really worked and they're really here for us. right? And that's the difference between me as a clinician and a scientist. I can work with people in the hundreds, maybe thousands. Scientists have the capacity to help people in the millions. And what's really neat is, is that we do have this. It is going through the appropriate chain and mechanisms. So talk with it. It's normal to have fear. I normally don't like jumping through windows, but there's this slow fire that's invisible. It's been going on for 18 to 20 months. The way we'll get through it is getting everyone vaccinated and that will offer less time for the virus to mutate, form other variants and go through other things. So we can do that. Also, you know, if you're really thinking about it, if you do need that fire truck with a ladder, we're not necessarily going like, is this safe? Have you structurally tested this, right? But that's because it's visible. Here it is long-term. 
we have the illusion of choice, but it's still an illusion. We want to work together. We want to make safe choices. We want to trust the people who are here to help us. Um, so, you know, if you want to talk, if you're one of my patients or families, please ask. If you're a pediatrician, please ask, talk about, but recognize that vaccine refusal is mostly being driven by fear, which is a natural, normal response. And yes, we can take patients and say, I don't want you in my practice if you don't want vaccines. But where does that family go and where does that child go? How do we help support that child? So building these strong, stable, supportive, nurturing relationships, which is what we do as pediatric clinicians with our parents, with our families, right? We are there to be the emotional rock for them and to help them make informed decisions. Thank you. And there was a comment here. This is thank you for the answer, your answers and for the incredible work you're doing on behalf of our families and children. So Rob, Melissa, uh, and to your teams, our psychiatrists or psychologists or emergency colleagues, our inpatient colleagues, the nurses, the frontline staff, you know, just so, so grateful for everything that's being done on behalf of children. And uh, so thank you for joining us. We have a great audience today. If you have additional questions, please reach out to us. We'll be happy to uh, contact you. And if you think this is a topic you want to talk about again, please let us know and we can have a follow-up with our, our standing speakers. Take care, be well, enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.